This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. We first met Julie at the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival a couple weeks ago in Doswell, Virginia. You heard her on that podcast, and two minutes was not enough to get her full story. Julie has an amazing life in fly fishing. We're going to start off with a chance encounter with Joan Wolf. We're going to lead you through her life in Montana, Alaska, and now to Oklahoma. We're going to learn about snakes, bears, and tarantulas, oh my. We're going to hear about her life as a competitive angler and how she is addicted to dubbing. This is Julie's story. This is going to be part one. She's got a lot of stories to tell and there's even more to tell. So this is the first part of our interview with Julie. I hope you all enjoy. All right, Julie, could you introduce yourself and let us know where you are located? Yeah, my name is Julie Matson, and I'm located in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. It's actually a small town outside of Broken Bow called Town. It's located near the Lower Mountain Fork River. All right, I'm going to look this up on Google Maps just so I get a reference. So if you look for Broken Bow Lake, that's the dam there is the headwater that makes the Lower Mountain Fork. You are quite the landlocked individual. Yes, right now, yes. Yeah, so let's get into that. So let's go... Your childhood, we're going to do Montana, Alaska, where you are now. How did you get into all this? And then we got a whole bunch more to talk about. So let's dive into how did you become a fly angler? And is there a celebrity that you look like that people could picture while we're talking? 
Not really. You you ask that question, and I I don't. I don't think so. But okay. uh, yeah, so I started out in Montana about age ten. I happened to be at a fly fishing show down in Livingston, Montana, and was lucky enough to watch Joan Wolf cast and do some fly tying. And as a little kid, I remember her height sitting at a table was about right at my eye level. I was able to say that's what I want to do. So that's where I started tying flies. I got a fly tying kit for Christmas, and I just went from there. And then later on in life, after high school and all that happened, I started trying to get into the industry. And it was really tough back then for women to be in the industry. So I decided to go up to Alaska and uh, visited there for a couple of weeks and then moved. And I spent about a year kind of jumping on any float plane that I could find an empty seat on and going out to remote lakes and just really getting the lay of the land. And then from there, I went on to hold 274 forest service permits for different waters in Southeast Alaska. And I was an outfitter guide there for about 13 years. And then I went back to Montana and guided on the upper Madison for a couple of years. And then was doing some things during the winter and got asked to come down to Oklahoma. And I've been down here for about nine years on the lower mountain fork. And last year, I started returning to Alaska for a few months during the summer. That is wild. Yeah. It's been a busy life. Now, the only childhood children growing up in Montana fly fishing that I can picture are the brothers in a river runs through it, running across the field with their rod cases. Was that your childhood? It was, yeah. I mean, every family outing, everybody would have their spin casters and all that and i'd be out there with my fly rod doing my thing so yeah i mean it was it was definitely from the beginning that's what my true love was was there a local shop that you were the shop rat hanging out all the time any shop any shop i could get into you know growing up for sure were your parents into it driving you places supporting the fishing habit well they 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 always um, supported the outdoor habit, you might say. But my dad was actually later on was a charter boat captain in Alaska for years. So we used to always battle who was who is the right way to fish. So so that's kind of how I grew up. So you've got fishing in your blood. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Did you have after Joan Wolf? Was there a mentor that helped you along the way? Anyone you looked up to? You know, really, it was just all of um, reading books. I mean, you know, that's a long, it's been a while since then. But definitely, it was just spending time out on the river. And I would run into people. And they were always so helpful. I mean, I remember one older gentleman I met along the lake. And pretty soon, we're sitting up at his cabin. And a moose is walking through the front door of the place, you know. I mean, just experiences that I got to have by just being out there and he taught me flies and how to cast a little bit different we'd go out there at midnight and have huge rainbows just swimming around our feet and catching fish and it it was a good time and that was probably in my 20s that I was doing that type of stuff I imagine you wouldn't do well in like a New York City urban environment 
No, I don't. I don't do well going to fly fishing shows and having to drive through the city. I'm a small town girl by heart. Yeah. Where in Montana did, did you say where you grew up in Montana? So I grew up in the largest city in Montana, which would be Billings. But from there, I had you know the outdoors was kind of the Red Lodge area all over the state. I mean, we'd go everywhere, Little Belt Mountains and fishing small streams there. I was born in Fort Benton, so that's right along the the Missouri River. And then in my adulthood, I lived in Annis for a while and guided on the Upper Madison. Wow. You've accomplished a lot. Yeah, I've been around a little bit. Yeah. How old were you when you left Montana? So I was in my 30s when I actually left Montana. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then that brought you to Alaska, which is still on my bucket list. You can tell me anything about it. You can make stuff up. I probably would believe it because it's such a mysterious place. It is a mysterious place. And I think one of the best things about Alaska is you can go just a little bit off the beaten path and you know that you're standing where nobody else has stood before. That's yeah. the cool thing. That's pretty wild. Do you ever have to worry about getting lost in situations like that? Um, no, I, I never really got worried about getting lost. You know, we I lived on an island that Ketchikan is located on. It's called Ravilla Gagato. And there's only 36 miles of paved road. But if you put a road around the whole island, it would be 1,200 miles long. I'd have to go back and do math. That's a whole lot of non-paved. Yeah. That's wild, literally. What was it like having to go from, which I assume is growing up pretty much dry fly fishing, to right. Alaska? What was the learning curve when you went from one to the other? Well, um, there was definitely, you know, and, and so Alaska, I mean, there's a lot of dry fly action too. So, so there is that, but it is a lot more of your streamers, big bugs, those type of things. But once you get out to those remote waters and you're fishing for like Pacific native cutthroats and things like that, it's, it's still a dry fly game if you want. I mean, they'll, they'll bite on anything. These fish are seeing like maybe a, half a dozen people a year no pavement no people nope everything so most people in that area owned boats not cars okay tell me about float planes all right so what do you want now <laughs> what's it like i imagine it's like being in like a flying small compact car it is on most of them so there's there's a little bit of difference there's a cessna where you really feel like you're part of the plane. And then you go up to the Beaver, which has a little bit of room, you know, six passengers. You can put your gear in there and stuff. And then there's the Otter. And the Otter, you really feel like you're on more of a commercial flight. It's it's much bigger. There's the three different types, and, and it depends on where you're going into and weight and different things on which one of those that you can go on. But being up in a float plane, I mean, you're seeing things from a whole different view for like years for instance i thought rainbows you know were an arch well no they're a circle and you can fly right through the center of them wow and that's super cool so i've had days where flying over the ocean you're watching whales come up out of the water i mean just 
all kinds of things. It, it was definitely an experience that I hold dear to my heart. That's for sure. Have you ever documented any of that? Short stories, write it down, photos, pictures? You try to capture it or is it uncapturable? Well, I mean, some of it's you can capture. And yeah, I have tons and tons of photos. I have diaries, you know, but, and usually I just share it by word of mouth, I guess. I've, I've always been kind of a more humble person through my career, I guess. So I don't know if that's here or there. What brought you from being a angler for fun to being one that does it as a profession? How did that start? So I was always one, you know, I'd be out at my local river or lake and, or I'd have friends and I was always trying to get them into it, you know, somebody to fish with and hang out. And I love to teach. So that's really where it came from is just spending time with people and teaching them what something that I'm passionate about and I love and then watching them evolve and doing something for the first time, especially like catching, you know, going up to Alaska, catching a salmon for their first time. They've waited their whole life and now they're doing it on a fly rod and they've never touched one before. So that's, that's truly what got me, I think into it and kept me in it because each person learns different. So I'm always learning from my clients too. Right on. Tell me about guiding in Oklahoma. What's it like down there? Let's go through hatches, seasons, fill us in on your schedule. What you walk us through yesterday? Okay. So here in Oklahoma, one of the unique things is it is a, a year around fishery. And yes, it gets, it gets super hot here, but we also have some cooler weather here. It's a year-round fishery because it is stocked, but we do have a natural reproduction too. The river holds browns and rainbows. The hatches here are something to experience because, you know, coming from Montana, we had like set things. You always had the Mother Day's, you know, caddis fly hatch and you had your October caddis. Here with, with this river, it can be really random. I mean, there's a lot of bugs, but one day you can be out there and, you know, real small, tiny stuff, PMDs flying around, that type of thing. And then all of a sudden you'll see three or four, you know, March Browns go by and you're like, what is going on? I mean, it's, it's just sporadic hatches. So a little bit of everything always works here. That's for sure. And then you have your normal flies for your stalkers. We have a fall season where, you know, stripping some streamers works really well. But that's kind of what's kept me here, you know, during the the winter for sure is it being, you know, year-round fishery like today at 65 degrees out, you know. So a few days ago, it was like 30 degrees out. So it, it does it does bear, jump up and down. But you're like seeing swings at 30, 40 degrees sometimes during this time of year. And this is all in the tailwater below that big lake. Yep, yep. So we have, it's located in Beaver's Bend State Park. It's the lower mountain fork. So where it comes out of the dam, they call it Spillway Creek. And then it hits a big bluff wall and turns. And that's considered the lower mount, mountain fork river. It's crystal clear. It's one of the few rivers that I've seen down south that stays crystal clear year round. I don't know what else. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on here in Hochitown. It's just not about fish, fishing. This has really become 
a getaway for a lot of the bigger cities that are with within six to three hours of here. So we see customers from Texas being DFW area is probably one of our main ones. Houston, Missouri. This week I had a lot of clients from Baton Rouge getting out of Mardi Gras. Right. What they said. So I found out, you know, what a king cake was. Never had one of those, but a client brought me one. So that was interesting. And just um so they come from all over and I've had them from California flying into DFW and then coming up here to rent a cabin. There's a lot of cabins in the area and they're not your typical cabins. These are luxury cabins that have everything, game rooms, media rooms, you know, outdoor activities. If there's something you want to do, you'll find it in Hochtown. Sounds like a fun place. A lot of yeah. out of town license plates. Yes. Yes. It is. What are, what are some of the non Salmonid species that you're going to catch any native fish in there or anything that's been introduced? What else could so, you accidentally swing up on a fly? So you can accidentally, you'll run into um, some crappie. Uh, you'll every once in a while call, catch a smallie. That's really about it. Anything that, you know, walleye once in a while, I guess too, anything that can make it through that dam, pretty much you, you have the, chance of catching one once in a while but it's it's not very often we mentioned on the other podcast water moccasins yes how do you mm -hmm. deal with those well you know you get to you get to see a lot of people's reactions that's that's always interesting i've had people quit fishing because they're not gonna be in the water with snakes i've had a guy that had a fish hooked one time wearing a pair of shorts and the snake went from him for him. So I netted the fish and the snake. And that's how we handled that situation. Wow. So it's it's a little bit different than being like up in Alaska where you're deer dealing with bears every day and you can hear them and see them coming. Yeah, the snake's not so much. You just got to always keep an eye out. How big is a big water moccasin? Like girth and length. So I would say the biggest one I've ever seen is probably somewhere in that five foot range and maybe, you know, two, three inches around. I mean, I, I'm sure there's some much bigger ones, you know, there's a, there's a lot of other things down South that can get you to from chiggers to, you know, wolf spiders chasing you down the sidewalk, that type of thing. Um, tarantulas. We have those down this way too, I guess. I, you know, it's Where are you going to move next? Somewhere with piranhas and <laughs> vampire bats? No, no. I, I'm i one that I like the things that I can see and come. And so I'd rather deal with bears, those type of animals, than, than these smaller creatures. Wow. How much yeah. of this are you doing on foot? So you, you might encounter snakes versus can you float the rivers? Or rivers? No, so th this river you can't float. Um, there's no access, so everything we do is walk and wade. Okay. So and summertime, can you just get away with like flip flops and Crocs? Well, no. So during the summertime, we'll wet wade, but we always wear the wader boots due okay. to. And on this river, you can wear felt bottoms. It's super slick in areas, so just as safety goes, it's better to wear the wading boots. So the tailwater just makes it kind of slimy and 
Yeah, there's cover. a lot of vegetation, which, you know, in turns gives us a lot of um, bug life. So it's a win-win kind of deal there. Awesome. So the flies you're using, you said it's the sprout of catches, like a woolly bugger, a pheasant tail, a caddis, yep. elk hair caddis. Yep. PMDs, you know, tiny stuff too. You know, a lot of 18s, zebra midges, uh, crystal midge probably is one of my, you know, uh, secondary flies. Um, egg patterns with the stalkers, that's always a, a big one. So, yeah, there's a variety all across the board. Other than eggs, are there techniques from Montana and Alaska that really come in handy down there? Um, yeah, I mean, techniques. You mean drifts or, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of things. I, you know, it's still all your basics, you know, mending your line and, and um, different currents. The, the unique thing about this river is it has all different water types. So you got an upper section that's got pocket water. You have structure in the water. So down trees, different things like that. You have big deep pools. So you have your fast water, your slow water. I mean, so you do have a variety of water here too. So like the picture that is behind me right now, that is that is of the spillway creek coming out of the dam. Okay. A lot so of right angles on those rocks yeah yeah do those snag your flies a lot yeah so those are a lot of pocket water down through that area and, and that tends to be the section that the browns hang out into so oh yeah that's more of a brown area interesting they just like the pockets is it the riffle action the oxygen i think Ooh. there's that and then about you know, there's they put browns back in here after there's a big flood in 2016 that really changed the river up a lot. And so that is the area that they dumped the browns in. And now they're going up the feeder creeks from there and starting to reproduce. And and they're averaging somewhere right around the 12 to 14 inch rain. But we have seen some up in the 20s. So, Heck yeah, so they're definitely, you know, making a full comeback. And the purpose of the dam, is it hydroelectric? Do they change the water levels based on needs or is it just a recreational structure? So it, it does it does support the, the water systems here in Hochitown and then it does generate electricity for here. But that's on another section of the river that where it, that comes out, the hydro dam. Oh, so you don't have to worry about power lines or any kind of weird structures down where you are. No, no, I don't. Nice. So, so the only thing that affects me is if the lake gets full, then they'll, you know, they'll bump up the flow and stuff. But that's why that section's so unique because during the summer, they can pull it off the bottom, bump it up, and they keep that water cool when it's 110 degrees outside. That sounds refreshing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> but it is a busy place. So, you know, I tend to do during the summer, we kind of try and do trips first thing in the morning and then let all the others, you know, utilize the river for other activities midday and on. Okay. Anything interesting from the lake ever wash over the dam other than fish? You'll find something cool. No, but there are a lot of um, native artifacts in the area from what I hear. So um, I know there's a lot of rock hounds that come to this 
area and, and look for different artifacts and things like that. It is Choctaw Nation in this area. So interesting. Have yeah. you ever just been looking down and said, oh, that's an arrowhead? No, not here in Montana. I did a lot, but not here. I'm talking about Montana, that's where you started tying flies. Are you still tying your flies now? Yeah, yeah I tie today. I have a lot of my own patterns that oh. I use guiding. I have tied commercially in the past to a little bit for different places up in Alaska. I, it's definitely a passion. If I'm not on the river, I'm usually tying flies. I don't do a lot of outside activities except maybe speaking at TU meetings and, and anybody else that needs help if it's a vets group or casting for recovery or real girls or something like that. Okay. What vice do you tie on? So I I have three vices. Uh -huh. It depends what I feel like. So um, by far, Regal's my favorite. It always has been. For some reason, I always go back to it. But I do have a travel Renzetti. And then I have one other one that's just an old school one that I keep around. Any favorite scissors, bobbins? Any other tools you, you got to have with you? You know, I have my favorite whip finisher that's just a i don't even know what brand that one is you know i mean i've had it for 20 plus years at least when it comes to scissors i'm always using two three pairs at a time depending on what i'm tying probably some of my favorite products that are newer out on the market are um, Foley mill they've got a great line coming up and they're adding to it all the time so I really enjoyed tying a lot of my patterns with some of their new materials. And of course I use a lot of different materials. I am a dubbing addict or something that I can't walk in a store without buying a, some dubbing. It's, it's ridiculous. Really? Do you have a favorite? I use a lot of Senyo's ice dub. That seems to be the one I go through the most. So I've been, I've been really, I love semi seal. I mm -hmm. love that stuff. I like the UV, anything with UV in it. I've, I've really um, come up with some pretty great patterns with that because it's so deceiving. You'll look at a package, you're like, eh, and then you hit that with that UV light and it's like, yeah, that's what I want to tie with. So, so I like doing a lot of that stuff, hot spots. I'll change up some of that stuff. And a lot of that comes from the competitive fishing that I'm now doing too. So yeah. that's that's kind of been a whole learning curve you know in the last guess going on three years now are you getting ready for cicadas this summer i am not that isn't really i mean there's some down here but i know back in uh like the pa area and stuff boy they're just on fire and excited i have a teammate that lives down there and she's super excited about that so i might go up there and have to check that out i was invited so you might be in the brood xii or xix for this year yeah these are my cicada flies oh nice yeah yeah i'm a fly tying nerd i haven't tied in a while we had our monthly fly tying event at the bar the other night so all my mm -hmm. gear is packed up and it's still from that that's why i have room to podcast on my table <laughs> i i clamp my regal to my desk and the clamp just gets in the way too so it's mm -hmm. nice down here 
Yeah, I just got a new little um, fly tying uh, station from uh, Lone Bison. And I'm really liking it. It's, it's got a magnet on the bottom, so you can throw it on top of your truck or on the tailgate, what? sit there I during streamside. It holds all your tools for you. It's got a couple magnets on it and stuff. And and uh, I really like it. It's it's called the Nomad, I think is what it's called. And okay. it's, it's a great little setup. I've seen a suction cup vice from my friend in Wales. That was wild, but I've never heard of a magnetic one. Yeah, go look at Lone Bison and and check out his tables. They're made all made with uh, local Oklahoma hardwoods too, so they're they're beautiful. Besides being very functional, I could stick that on the radiator at the Salmon River Lodge where I had to tie flies. There was no desk last time, and I had to tie on the radiator. Yeah, not, not pleasant for my back. Yeah, and when you travel a lot, you know, um, like I have in the last three years with the USA Women's Team. Definitely that becomes a thing is not having room to tie. So having a little table could come in handy. Yeah. So let's talk about, you mentioned the women's fly fishing team. We'll get into them in a bit, but I want to talk about the Euro nymphing you've gotten into. How have some of those techniques been encroaching into your guiding and personal fishing other than a hot spot here and there? <laughs> so the Euro, Euro nymphing has been a complete learning curve for sure. And it was, it's kind of funny, you know, telling friends and family, I'm like, yeah, I got to buy these rods. And they're like, why, why would you have to buy rods after 25 years? And I'm like, it's completely different. You know, it's been the learning curve, but it has enhanced the, the catch when it, when it comes to catching fish, it is a lot more productive. It truly is. And so I've taken some of what I've learned in competitive fishing and stuff and kind of altered a little bit so that the clients can do it too. So that's that's been rewarding and kind of a you know, good experience. And then, you know, just teaching the real basics. So by no means do I consider myself like some high expert on Euronymphing, but the basics, you know, and get getting out there and leader building and all those things that go along with it. Are there a particular brand rods and, and leaders you're using versus other ones? Anything that you so, are... Um... So I have a lot of different things because when you first start out, you, you kind of, you know, you might buy, like Umqua has a really good um, leader that's all tied up. And I use that a lot at first. And it's it's a heavier one. But now over the years, I've moved on to like micro leaders. So literally it's, it's just one piece. And so I build my own leaders for that. And I, Adams is a great product that I've been using here lately. So I do, I do like that for a micro leader. How thin is that on the end? If it's micro. So, so you, your leader will run up. I mean, that's all like about four X when you're doing a micro leader. Not bad. And then from there, I drop down anywhere between six and eight X. Ooh. Yeah. And I, I catch imagine big fish. Yeah. If you've got crystal fish. clear water that's moving at a specific rate. So I imagine you definitely want a leader that's going to cut through all of that. Right. Yeah. And that is, that is a huge benefit to, 
to Euro nymphing or tight lining or whatever you want to be doing is that you can move slower than that surface water because that surface water is running faster than the water underneath. Have you ever had a client from Europe not familiar with Euro nymphing and kind of question no. why you said that? No. Okay. I asked a Scottish friend what he called scotch tape back home with cello tape. <laughs> so, yeah, never know what a European might be like. Why do you call it Euro nymphing? Well, that's where it was born, I guess. Right. Um, and that's the thing is, I mean, Euro, there's Czech nymphing. There's, you know, I mean, they all have Spanish. I mean, they all have a different technique to it. You just combine the, the ones you like into one, into like the Julian yeah. method? Well, it's different casting forms. So it depends on where you're at on the river and which which one will work best for the run that you're on. You ever fished that style in Alaska? I did last summer. How was that? It was great because uh, the gentleman that I was working for, I whooped him. So we had a little contest. He was talking about pinned eggs and the plastic eggs, and I don't use those. But he was asking me if I did because that's what his outfitting company uses sometimes. So I said, here's the deal. I have an egg pattern I tie. I'll use my technique. You use yours. We'll each have a bead on the river, and we have one hour to catch as many fish as we can, and we have to take pictures of them. So we went down. We did this. And I caught 21 and he caught seven. Wow. Yeah. So 21 in an hour. As the egg material for sale at his fly shop and is tying that pattern for That's trout. That's funny. Yeah. It was a good time. Right on. Where do you go to fish when you're not competing and, and not working? Is there a fun destination you have? Oh, uh, anywhere I go. I mean, I've been. You know, before before all that, I always took a trip once a year and tried to go fish somewhere different. Definitely, I've been to Virginia. I've been to South Dakota, North Dakota, just different waters. The San Juan River holds a special spot. Love that area. Montana, every time I go home, it doesn't matter if it's for Christmas in the dead of winter. I'm out on some water somewhere. So... And yeah, I don't go to, very long without going out. You used to guide ice, hard water with fly fishing. Yeah. So flies with hard water. Yes. So we, we, we did an ice fishing. It, it was working out at a private ranch um, for selected clientele. Um, and so what we did is everything that went through the ice was flies that we tied so and if the ice wasn't thick enough we would sit there and teach the fly tying to whoever was staying there at that time so we did a lot of shrimp patterns woolly bugger patterns if, if you're ever on the ice and it's a bright sunny day and look you know kind of shade it and look down that hole you can see all the bug life swimming around it it's like looking into a big aquarium really and being able to see everything so literally then you can walk off the ice go tie a fly that that looks similar to you know scuds whatever's in the water and you're catching fish that's wild i like doing yeah. that i have a yeah. pocket vice somewhere just for that mm -hmm. 
It's a little vice that would fit in your vest back in the day for you to see stuff and tie on stream. Yep, I've seen one of those. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. That's fantastic. What's your yeah. what's your fishing vehicle? So I, I run around the Ford F one fifty. Nice. Yeah. Personalized license plate. No, I I don't have one anymore. I I did at one time. I you know, of course I run around with the the company logo on it on the rivers. You know, with the fish in the back window, that type of thing. The vehicle before this, I really had decked out where I had a fly fisherman down the side of it casting and all that type of stuff. So, yeah, through the years, I've definitely, you know, done different things with my vehicles. I was surprised by the amount of personalized license plates at the Virginia show recently. <laughs> really? That was a lot of personalized plates. A lot of rod holders on roofs, too. Yes. Yeah. So... So, yeah, I didn't have time to look at a whole lot of that. I was pretty busy throughout that whole show. Good. It's a good thing. Yeah. It was a good time. It was a really good time. We have another one coming up here in Mesquite, Texas, the Texas Fly Fishing Show and Brew Fest. It's February 24th and 25th, so this about a week and a half out from it. So we'll be kind of doing a little bit similar what we did there in Virginia with the U.S. women's fly fishing team kind of forefronting the women's beyond the cast and that type of thing and putting on different programs there and doing some casting with some of the people and things like that. Very cool. I've never been to Texas. I want to go to HEB. It's a grocery store. Kind of fascinated by the idea of this place. Hmm. I've never heard of it. Yeah. You're going to have to look for it when you're down there. I will. All right, so we're going to talk about some of the women's fly fishing stuff you do. But first, you do some video fly time? Well, I've done a couple little videos, but I, that's something that I want to get into more and get set up to do on a regular basis. Because literally, I spend, I don't know, three to four hours, probably four times a week, just tying in the evening, if not longer. There's a lot of times I get carried away and you know, it's three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so, yeah. I need to come hang out and tie with you. Yeah, I enjoy it. That's awesome. Yeah, There's so many flies of mine or techniques I want to demonstrate. I just don't have, I don't want to say the ability, but I just never get around to doing it. I can set up cameras in here and a background, but I need an editor and someone to do all that stuff. And it just hasn't happened. That's me. Yeah, that's me with the camera stuff, so... Yeah. So you're a member of the Texas Women's Fly Fishers? There is a group of, of women called the Women Texas Fly Fishers. Yes. Tell us about those ladies. So, I mean, I it's, it's a group I joined. I, I help them out doing different things when they come here locally and stuff like that. Okay. I think they have, and don't quote me on this, but I, I, I want to say somewhere 500 members or more. I mean, I, I think that's, it's very big, um, group of ladies, but they do a lot. They're very supportive of women and, and things in the industry and trying to put on different clinics and get more ladies involved. Um, they do a lot of travel from what I've seen from their page and that type of thing. Um, the president of the association is a friend and she's actually come with me twice now, learning more about Euro nymphing and 
and things like that when they've come here locally and and stayed for one of their get-togethers. Sounds fascinating. I think the former president was at our monthly beer fly tying events before she moved to the Mideast somewhere. Yeah. And we never got a chance to sit down and chat. Uh, But the women's fly fishing team, how did you find out about that? How'd you get on and, and tell us all about it so we can get more ladies signed up? All right. So it's kind of a, it, it was a weird thing. Literally somebody sent me a link and I saw it on the internet and I was like, I don't know what this is about, you know, cause I'd always checked into competitive fly fishing when I was younger and could never find anything on it. When I lived in Montana, especially out on the West, I applied, filled in all their questions. This was before the pandemic. And so they had originally kind of put together a team prior to the pandemic the first worlds was supposed to be held in Norway and then the pandemic happened and shut everything down. So after that, I ended up getting an invite by email to come out to New York and go through one of the first clinics that they were putting on. And basically from there, it was just a whirlwind. I haven't stopped traveling or doing something with them since. So from there, I went and attended every single clinic that they put on. I started competing in any mini comp that I could get to that was reasonable. And then from there, I went to nationals. And at nationals, my team took the silver medal. So that put me on the team going to Norway. I was a reserve. And then we missed the bronze medal in Norway at the first ever by one fish. And then last year, I secured a position as an angler on the team, the world's team. And we went to Canada, and there we were able to secure the bronze medal for the U.S. And that was the first time ever that the men's masters and the U.S. women's, that we had two teams on the podium at the same time. So that that was really cool and a big event. And right now, we're getting all geared up. Because we go to Czech Republic in May. How does one gear up for this? What are you tying? What are you packing? Walk me through your whole system. All right. right. Well, it's a system. Basically, let's see where to start here. So gearing up. First off, it's like securing everything. So we try and do a little bit of fundraising. It's all self-funded. That it's it's not funded by anything. We have no sponsors that are paying completely for things. We have sponsors that have given us things, but not monetary. So from there, we we do fundraising, and then we get into the housing. We have team housing for about a week. We secure a guide in whatever place we're going or country. And then that guide starts handing, you know, what flies work, what we should, you know, look at as far as um, research. We research each venue. We get together by Zoom meetings because we're so spread out. The five of us that are on the team, we've got one in Montana, two in PA, myself here in Oklahoma, and one in Colorado. So it's definitely spread out. And then we are always competing mini comps just to keep up on skills. So going into it there and then packing, literally it is, it pushes the limits. 
I have repacked and unpacked several times before actually getting on the flight. So trying to put everything that you think you need in two 50-pound bags has been quite a, a chore. Literally, I have everything that I put in my bags separately weighed so that I know what I can fit in where. Wow. So that might be a little bit extreme, but that's what I've had to do because then you get somewhere you unpack and you can't remember what goes where to make it work again. But literally we have to take a broad band of things because we don't just Euro nymph. We lock style, which is in lakes. We could end up bank fishing. So you're taking everything that you would use on the water for lake fishing. Plus you're taking everything that you would use for your Euro. Plus you're taking everything for fly tying. Because you're going to tie flies every single day you're there. There is a lot of equipment, all your rods, all your leader material, all your fly boxes, all your fly tying. Then for lakes, it's a boat bag, a cushion, all your safety flotation devices, clothes. Yeah, there's that. So, you know, you definitely stay somewhere where you can do laundry because... Clothes are kind of low on the totem pole because you're going to bring two pairs of waders, two pairs of boots. So if you have something that goes wrong, you have backups. And when you're doing lake fishing, you're not talking about just a rod and a reel. You're talking about 12 to 15 different lines on different reels because you're going to change out depending on what depth you want to go to. So there's a lot to pack. First question, do you ever just wear your waders and boots on the airplane to save space? No, but that's a really good idea because some suckers weigh some yeah. some weight there. You know, what especially it, if, if you fish and then fly back, that's always a challenge because your boots are wet. So trying to get them dry enough to not add extra weight to your suitcase sometimes. What do you carry on with you and what do you trust them to check? I think the flies maybe would go on my personal body. Yeah, so... So what I've always done is I try and put my my competitor pack in my carry-on. And then, of course, I try and throw a couple pieces of, you know, clothing in case you get stuck somewhere. And then I put most of my glues or anything like that also in my carry-on because of the different temperatures and stuff. I always worry a little bit about that. I have been fortunate enough to be able to carry my rods on. So literally I have those as I have my rods as my personal item. So, so I, I have not argued, but I've definitely opinionated that I, my rods will go on the plane with me. So yeah. And 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 with that being said, you know, trust is a probably, it's a scary thing to me. When I came back from Norway, they lost my luggage for two months with $15,000 worth of equipment. So yeah. So that was a scary time. Yeah. All my fly time materials that I've had and accumulated for 20, 30 years, things that I knew I could never replace. What are some of your favorite things that you have to take with you? Soft tackle? Is there like a certain feather that you just, for your go-to flies? Well, I always take all my dubbing with me. I have a real problem with that right? because I feel like I can tie anything as long as i have dubbing 
that's probably my number one thing. Number two is probably some CDC. And then I, I kind of also, I have certain flies that are my confidence flies, which is a big thing. Um, and so I always make sure that I have like a little Ziploc bag that's got those materials in it. Excellent. So, yeah. When the people at X-Ray are always just looking at you, like, what are you into? Well, yeah. I mean, they can kind of tell by the way you're dressed, you know? Right. And, and I think the other thing is kind of fortunate when you go to these bigger events that are worldwide, everybody's kind of going into certain airports. So they've probably seen 10, 20, you know, other ones coming through already. So, so I think they get a little bit like, oh, okay, here's here's the U.S. coming in now or, you know, that type of thing. You ever have a TSA agent or similar overseas suggest, you know, maybe you want to drop this down to like a size 18 pheasant tail nymph? No, yeah. nope. I've never had anybody suggest. I've had a lot of questions, you know, and a, a lot of things of thinking it was super cool, that type of stuff. So I've ran into that before. I think we need to circle back to dubbing before we wrap this up. How did, <laughs> okay. how did this whole dubbing thing start? Tell me about your dubbing addiction. I, I don't know. You can do anything with it, you know? It's um, lightweight. It doesn't take up space. It's inexpensive. Yeah, I love mixing colors, making my own. I have a lot of jars. It's like got it marked on it what fly it's for. And it's because I've taken this, that, and added to it and made my own kind of blend. I mean, there's nothing what else could you use a coffee grinder for, you know? Right. So, so there's that type of thing. So I think it's just being able to change it up and the different colors and you can add or take away or whatever. Any obscure dubbings you have? Anything that's just weird? That I've ever used. I mean, sure. There's, you know, certain colors, pets, that type of thing, you know, definitely, you know, especially off of a lab because, you know, the water just runs off them. That's great stuff for your Husky. Yeah. Who's got some really good under fur, you know, that type of thing. So there's, there's some things like that, that sometimes I've used. I imagine you travel with like a little pack of Ziploc bags. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, someone's got an orange pet. Like that old scientific <laughs> anglers ad where the guy's snipping the back of the fur coat in New York city with a baggie underneath it. Yep. That's yep. You do. How do you yep. keep yours organized or displayed? So I do. So I started off. There's a couple things. I mean, when you're first starting, you're it's all trial and error. You know, you you do one thing, and it it's like, can I make this lighter so I can get this in that type of thing? So so now basically, I go and get the big Ziploc bags. Everything's in Ziploc bags, and that goes inside it. I have one that's you know all the dubbing. And then one that's all of uh, marabou or this or that and kind of, you know, at least put them in categories. Mm -hmm. And then with the beads, it's just all, that's a lot of weight there is the beads. Sometimes those end up in my carry-on. So with those, it's just certain sizes and putting them all in one jar and then keeping them that way. Okay. Excellent. Have you ever just wandered into stores looking for odd beads and things? Oh, yeah. Dollar yeah. trees are great. And when I'm traveling, I'm looking for obscure time materials in places where they're not supposed to be time materials. Yep. Hobby Lobby, you know, Joanne's Fabric. Got to get your sulky from there. So, you know, there's always that. 
so yeah, there's there's definitely other places that you can get tying materials, but really, you know, anymore it's kind of narrowing things down and and really being able to be productive in mm-hmm. in tying and stuff like that. Yeah. So. All right. If you had a superhero's power to make you a better angler, what would it be? If you could fly to carry more than 100 pounds of gear? Yeah, that'd be nice just to be able to zip over because I really enjoy doing mini comps and meeting all the other competitors and learning from them. Um, So that's probably the biggest thing it would be to be able to attend all those, every single one of them. And again, how do you say the name of your town? Hoochatown. Hoochatown? Hochatown. Hochatown. Who's got the best sandwich in Hochatown? Mm, I would say Shady Oaks. Shady Oaks. All yeah. right. For the person that's keeping track of that, put that on our Google Maps. Drop a pin. Yep. Again, I asked you this before. Where can we find you, what you do, the organizations you work with, any sponsors, brands? Where's it all located? Um, so, I mean, you can always Google me. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely on the, the internet. The company, my company is on the rivers fly fishing. There's that. And then, I mean, you can email me and from, I mean, if you go to my webpage, you can get a hold of me, you know, through email or phone or however you want to. And if people want to bring you dubbing, they can drop it off at the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. Yeah, sure. That'd okay. be awesome. I'm all about that. that. I'm sure I'll be buying some there, even though I just went through it and told myself I should not, but I'm sure I will. And threads. I like all the new colors of threads and matching things too. So Semperfly, I guess, is going to be there. So that's going to be a hard one to to not, you know. I want to get into their synthetic peacock stuff, but I haven't grabbed it yet. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, there's a lot of bugs you can tie and make it super, it's a lot quicker. You know, you're taken out, but there still is nothing like the good old peacock, you know, real deal thing, Mm -hmm. too. Absolutely. So that's huge. But yeah. All right, Julie. Well, I'm going to have to look you up on my next cross country trip. That would be awesome. I'll take you out here on the river and we'll go catch some trout. That sounds fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. And everybody, please give Julie a shout if you're passing through her area or you're going to a show. If you have questions about the women's fly fishing team, you know where to find her. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com.